Welcome to the Cold Brew Podcast. It is November 11th. Dave Gasper here with co-host Matt Carroll. We are the editors of ReviewingTheBrew.com. In today's episode, we're going to discuss uh, more on the Brewers' offseason. Uh, award season is here. Brewers are getting some awards. And another exciting game of tender or non-tender. All that and more coming up here on this episode of the Cold Brew Podcast. And joining us on this week's episode is Will Salmon, uh, Brewers beat writer for The Athletic. Will, how you doing, man? Thanks for joining us. Doing really good, guys. I think you guys do an awesome job with this show, so I'm glad to be on. Thanks for having me. Well, I mean, we're, we're glad to, to have you on. So the Cy Young um, Awards, just kind of to get right into it, the, the Cy Young Award uh, was just recently announced. Uh, the National League went to Trevor Bauer. Not really all that surprising, uh, but Corbin Burns of the Brewers, he finished sixth in the balloting. And, you know, he he got even a fourth place vote. I saw from Britt Groley also of The Athletic. Uh, and, you know, he really came on strong towards the end of the season, uh, really kind of putting himself in that kind of conversation before uh, his final start where he came up short on the innings and, and pushed his ERA back. But, I mean, this is just an, an incredible kind of turnaround for Corbin Burns, who was practically unpitchable last year to now this year, a sixth place finish in the 2020 Cy Young voting. Yeah, it's a remarkable story, right? Because we entered spring training way back in February, wondering what his role was going to be. There was the idea of maybe Corbin Burns not even being on the major league roster at the start of the season, which is hard for people to fathom all these months later because of how well he performed. But that was the reality. Was Craig Council suggesting like, hey, you know, we may have him get even further stretched out. And to do that, he may be in the minor leagues. And then what happened was he pitched so well in spring training those first couple of weeks that it became pretty obvious rather quickly that there was no way of that guy being in the minor leagues. He was going to be part of the major league roster. It was just the idea of put him and what's his role going to be. He was just pitching that well. It was He was just dominant. And credit to him, I mean, he got better during the stoppage. And he refined his pitches that he was working on in the offseason, made them better. He never stopped throwing. And then when he got to summer camp, he was just completely lights out again. And he was even better. The, the fastball was, was crisper. The secondary pitches that he was working on, even better movement. I mean, I thought Jace Peterson put it best, actually, one of the Brewers' uh, reserve infielders, when he said that the guy was just unhittable um, during summer camp. And he carried that over into the um, regular season, had that first start that didn't really go all that well, um, comparatively speaking. But I thought I saw enough in that first start against the Cubs where it was like, okay, it's not a dominant performance where it was seven innings, no runs and 10 strikeouts or anything like that. But he had his moments where he flashed some, some really good signs. And after that detour in the bullpen, he, he really just put it all together during that stretch. And he was, in my opinion, the best pitcher going for a brief, brief period of time. And that, for me, uh, forced me to vote for him. And I think that actually what, what sort of docked his candidacy a little bit was the fact that he finished with only 59 and two-thirds innings. And so he didn't qualify for the ERA title. And I think sometimes you know, people 
when they sort through statistics, they'll put that as one of their stats and his name doesn't show up there. So you have to do the research and you have to find him and you have to compare him to everybody else. And, and when you do that, he compares pretty favorably, at least in the top five was how I saw it. So again, like you said, David, it's a, it's a remarkable story. It really is. Yeah. And I mean, for, for Corbin, like it, it came down to that final start and he was trying so hard to get through that fourth inning. Like he, he was right there. He was one out away from qualifying the trainer came out. He tried to shoo him away. He's like, "No, I got this. I got this." And then eventually, he just had to had to come out of the game. He had given up a couple of runs, so his ERA lead was gone. And then he didn't even qualify, anyways. So I mean, that, that was a really tough ending for it. But I mean, if he had made it through that fourth, and if he had like you know a solid final start, you know, he might have been you know fourth or fifth even. I I still don't think even with a good final start, he he would have won it. But you know, part of that kind of goes to like you talked about earlier in the season. He wasn't fully entrenched in the rotation. Um, he he was piggybacking with Brett Anderson for a couple of weeks there uh, before a spot opened up and, and he was able to slide in. So uh, that that really kind of hurt his candidacy. But still, I, I think uh, he ended up in, in a really good spot. And like you said, you you had a Cy Young vote. Um, you had Trevor Bauer first, which makes a, a whole ton of sense. He got 27 of the 30, I think, first place votes. Uh, but I mean, when you when you get that um, assignment where where you're voting for Cy Young, you know, what's really kind of the the biggest thing that that you look for in, in making that vote? It was really difficult. This was my first time doing it, and I thought that the NL Cy Young was probably the the hardest one to peg for a while because it's easy to look at the votes and say that Trevor Bauer was the automatic pick for it. But for me, I thought you Darvish was very deserving. I, th- I thought he put together a, a fabulous season. And another thing that I, I kept in mind also was the fact that, you know, who did, uh, who did Bauer pitch against? Right. I mean, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't the greatest lineup that that, that, that guy was going against every fifth day. Same thing could be argued for Darvish, for that matter. They were both pitching in the NL Central, which all three of us saw quite a bit. Uh, it was pretty horrid, the offense. And so they, they were able to, uh, you know, they were able to dominate. Um, and that's not to take anything away. It's just, a, it's just a point that I made in my, in my head of, you know, how, how hard was it to sort of judge it? Uh, because, you know, the, the regional schedule didn't allow for crossover matchups where an NL central pitcher was going against like say the Braves or, you know, we got the Grom pitching against the Marlins four or five, six times. So it was really hard to, to judge. So for me, I, I went through all the statistics, you know, quality, quality of contact, um, the, uh, the barrel rate for, for Bauer, the, uh, ERA plus everything. But what it came down to for me at the end was, Okay, Bauer has the edge in a couple of those statistics. Not all of them, but a few of them. But he also did what I think, at the end of the day, he should be judged on, which was give up the least amount of runs in the most innings. And so that's really, in a, in a shortened season, for me, that was... I hate to say that it was that simplified, because it wasn't, but I think that's what I came down to um, last month when I was doing this, was you know I, I tried not to overthink it, because the guy had the ERA for a reason, it's supported with the advanced statistics as well. So uh, that made it a little bit easier for me. Uh, but it was hard just because of, like I said, the schedule didn't do us any favors because of the um, the matchups being so similar. And there was also six to seven guys that you could have made a case for at least being in the top three. 
Yeah, I think it's it's really unfortunate what did end up happening to end Burns' season um, because I would have loved to see whether or not he could have maybe snuck up into those top three. Let's be honest, and, unless Bauer crashed and burned in his last start, I think that was his to lose personally. Um, but I think one of the coolest things, we brought up a lot of things about Burns over kind of the podcast episodes, but I think one of the coolest things about his season is he just kept getting stronger every start that he went out there. You know, before that last um, start, he was at sitting on a 1.77 ERA. He was holding opposing batters to 158 batting average, which is just nuts. But look at his last five starts before that final one. He only gave up a single earned run in those five starts. He had double-digit strikeouts in three of those five starts. One of those starts that he had 10 strikeouts in, he only went four and two-thirds. So, I mean, the guy was just mowing people down and getting in better and better as the season wore on. And then, unfortunately, you know, that injury brought it to an end. Um, I would just like to see, you know, if he if he would have followed that trend, you know, blown people away in that la- final start, like, really how high could he have uh, landed in that Cy Young voting? So it's it's unfortunate, but really cool to see, you know, that he did gather a handful of votes there in the end. Yeah, I totally agree. If you look at that start where he made, where he uh, re-entered the starting rotation against the Twins, and I think from that point until, like you said, that that final start of his against the Cardinals, uh, before that day, before I believe it was September 24th, uh, so from the time that he re-entered the rotation to right before that last start, you could have made the case that he was the best pitcher going in the NL during that stretch. His worst start, like you said, Matt, was was that start against the Cardinals two weeks before, where he where he didn't go five innings. I think he went four and two thirds, but the guy still struck out ten. So it was like, okay, the Cardinals had a game plan against them. They executed really well. They jacked his pitch count way up, um, higher than it was, made him less economical with his pitches, uh, but he was still effective, right? And it, like I said with Devin Williams on Twitter, like a few days ago when he was named Rookie of the Year. It became more of like an event when Corbin Burns pitched. And I think that's a, probably one of the biggest compliments you can give somebody in baseball these days because, you know, they're facing, uh, you know, the sport itself is facing the challenge of getting more people to actually watch the game. And here with the Brewers, you had two guys, Devin Williams and Corbin Burns, where it became sort of must-see. Like, you had to watch Cor- Corbin Burns because he had that start against the Tigers where it looked as if he was perhaps going to throw a perfect game. And then he had that... Another start against the Royals, I believe, where he kind of carried a no-hitter for a little while, if I remember right. So does he throw a no-hitter in 2021? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, he's pretty, he's pretty good. And now the Brewers enter 2021 with a great one-two punch in um, Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff. Yeah, I remember. I, I think I sent out a tweet. like It was like a couple hours before like the game started. It might have been the Royals one. It might have been one of the others. But I just like tweeted, I'm like, I got a feeling that Corbin Burns is going to throw a no-hitter. And I didn't say, like, tonight. I just kind of left it open vaguely so that if he ever throws one, I can just go back and say, you know what? I called it. So I've got that going for me. Um, yeah, that's smart. I, I believe because I think that I think you're going to be proven true one of these days. Yeah, and you know what else I'm going to be proven true on one of these days? I have been talking for two years about how Corbin Burns is going to win the Cy Young one of these days. I said it in 2019. It horribly backfired on me. But in 2020, I'm like, you know what? It's still going to happen at some point. And now he finished sixth place. And I just put an article up today about a couple of reasons why he's going to win it in 2021. So 
I think next year he can win it. I mean, he he's going to be fully entrenched in the rotation next year. I mean, he's he's entering 2021 as a co-ace with Brandon Woodruff, basically. So he's not going to have you know a couple of weeks where he's the second half of a of a piggyback tandem in the rotation. Like he's going to be out there given the full chance to go six, seven, eight innings uh, every single time out for 34, 35 starts uh, throughout the season. So he's going to have that opportunity next year. Yeah, not only that, but even like we said, I mean, Corbin Burns is still relatively fresh. I mean, there, there's going to be a bunch of video on him, of course, scouting reports and all that. But it's a different animal when you're in the batter's box against him. And at least as the schedule is set up now, the Brewers will face teams other than teams in the NL Central. And so you would think that he would have the edge there just because of his variety of pitches, the movement on those pitches, um, how effective and how much confidence he has in each of them. And, and he may even have another another uh, gear or another wrinkle um, to add to his repertoire heading into 2021. I don't look at 2020 as sort of like a finished product for Corbin Burns. I think that there's an even higher level. I think that um, there are some pitches that he could even make even better, which is a scary situation, a scary proposition for uh, for the rest of the NL. Is it going to be because he finally figures out how to throw Devin Williams' changeup? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't think anybody's going to quite figure that one out. But you know, I, I do feel like that there's stuff that he could take away from 2020 um, as far as slider usage, because that 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 was such a great pitch for him in 2019. That you know he didn't really need it a whole lot in 2020 because of the other pitches that were going so so great for him. So I think that if he could find a way to maybe incorporate that pitch a little bit more, um, which he was doing a little bit toward the end, I believe, uh, he could be even scarier. Uh, because that two-seamer was, that was really effective, um, obviously. Uh, the cutter, he just got so much going for him. And, 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 he, and again, the four-seam fastball, too, was a pitch that he sort of didn't really need, and, and he even let it go from his arsenal at some points in the season. So I don't know. I, I just... I just don't want to say that, you know, 2020 is, is the ceiling for him. I don't think it is. No, I, I don't think so either. And, and we had Pitching Ninja on the show last week. And, you know, he was talking about Corbin Burns' cutter and saying how it's basically one of the best cutters in the game. And he just debuted that pitch this year. Like, prior, prior to 2020, he did not have a cutter in his arsenal, at least according to fan graphs. So he de- he debuted this pitch. I'm I'm guessing that they came up with it while he was in the pitching lab last year. Uh, and now he's he's got it. And, I mean, he was using it a large amount of the time uh, towards the end of the year. And it, it's a nasty pitch. He's got five, six pitches in his arsenal. And, you know, he's, he's going to keep getting better. Like, I, I, I said the exact same line in my article today. How, like, this is not a finished product for Corbin Burns. Like, he still has a very high ceiling and he still has a ways to go. He he's starting to get there, but that ceiling is still incredibly high. And, you know, th- there's a lot to like about um, Burns going forward. When we had a uh, Robert Murray on the show, friend of the podcast on uh, several weeks ago, he was talking about how a bunch of teams were trying to trade for, for Burns while his stock was low over the last year. And the brewers uh, very smartly rebuffed them and like, you know what? I think we might want to hold on to this guy. Yeah, no, no, no question. I think that the Brewers were, were high on him, even despite his struggles last year, last year in 2019, of course. You know, if you recall, uh, Chris Hook, their pitching coach, 
I mean, this was a guy who, who was super confident in Corbin Burns right after the 2019 season. Just, you know, he told anybody really who would listen to him about this is going to be a guy for us. This is going to be somebody that's, that's going to be somebody that we depend on. Lo and behold, it became true because, you know, they went into that winter with a plan. They said, look, you know, the slider is one of the best pitchers in baseball. It really was. If you look at the, the statistics on it. So let's, let's game plan around it and see what we could do with it. So they added the sort of like a, a two-seamer sinker type, or, sinker type pitch um, to co- sort of complement that and move it in a different way. And then, you know, he, he shows up and shows up to summer camp with, with even like another wrinkle to it. And it became sort of like two different pitches almost with the sinker and the cutter. And so I think that you're right with the point that you made earlier about this has been just a few months of this guy, not even a full year of this guy throwing those pitches. And so just theoretically thinking they're going to get better and they're already pretty elite right now. Yeah. I think that's just another example of, again, why you don't give up on those pitchers after just one bad year, especially ones that are so young. Um, And I think that hopefully will give fans a little bit of hope when we look at like Adrian Hauser from this season, um, Possibly all he needs to do is get down there, spend some time in the pitching lab, uh, tinker with some things, and come back out firing next season. But uh, you've got guys that young who have that good of stuff. Obviously, there's a way to unlock the potential and turn things around. And the Brewers' uh, pitching development team sure seems to have been doing a good job at doing that type of stuff lately. Yeah, they they have a good idea of... I think what they're doing as far as the pitching goes, not unlike some other teams around around baseball, of course, right? We're seeing a lot of different young arms really emerge and across a few different systems. Uh, but the Brewers in particular, and for for a franchise that has not always produced uh, great homegrown pitchers, right? This is oh, yeah. a renaissance period for them where, you know, yes, Adrian Hauser took a step backward in 2020. They're hoping for a better performance in 2021. That's pretty obvious, but... When you have a, a pair like we talked about at the top of your rotation, like Woodruff and Burns, and plus you have, you know, maybe Freddie Peralta comes comes into the rotation. Mm-hmm. Maybe um, Eric Lauer improves um, or gets to a point where they can rely on him a little bit more. And they still have somebody who could provide some, some innings, uh, eat up some innings, and perhaps get better as well. He's not a, he's not a younger guy, but Josh Lindblom is, is only – a year into the back into the major leagues, not even with 2020 being 60 games. So we'll see. Um, I, I like their their pitching development. I like the guys who are in charge of that. What I am concerned about is the hitting. I'm sure we'll talk about that, but uh, that's a whole different topic and kind of in a whole different direction almost, uh, where we just we'd like to see more. If you're a Brewers fan, you'd like to see obviously more uh, development from position players. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just to kind of stick with uh, the pitching theme while we're um, still there, you know, you're talking about guys that, you know, it's a must-see event when when they come in to pitch. Uh, That's what Devin Williams ended up being uh, throughout the year. And with his changeup and and fastball combination, I mean, every, every time he came in, we literally sent an alert to pitching ninja be like, hey, this dude's in and about to throw some nasty changeups. So it, it was it was just incredible. I believe the the technical term for players that are must see events when they come in are dudes. 
just calling him like that's I, I think that's a technical term. But I mean, Devin Williams, absolute dude. He comes in, he wins NL reliever of the year. And earlier this week, he won NL rookie of the year. It was fairly close balloting between Alec Bohm and uh, Jake Cronenworth. But Williams ended up on top. And, you know, you said it best in uh, your article for, for The Athletic talking about the case for and against um, each of these finalists. And you said there are no statistical holes in, in Williams's resume. The case against him is strictly pertains to, to theory, whether someone at his position, whether a reliever, should win over a position player uh, who plays every single day. And it turns out it was the reliever that ended up winning, which is something that, I mean, I feel like historically, like the the Baseball Writers Association, um, they tend to reward the position players, but this time they gave it to the reliever. And it, it feels like there's a little bit kind of a, a change in the minds, a, a change in the thinking there um, for the Baseball Writers that they gave this award to Devin Williams. There seemed to be some sort of a shift, right? Because it's not only that he was a relief pitcher, but he was also somebody who, as a relief pitcher, didn't start a game, but he also didn't have a save, right? He wasn't the closer for the Brewers. And and from a traditional sense, that's a big deal for, for some writers, and um, it may be passe, it should be passe at this point, but unfortunately for some people, it's, it's still not, um, where you know that's the thing that you kind of go by or you look at as maybe just not a be-all, end-all, but it, it sort of starts the conversation for you. And if that starts the conversation for you, then the conversation never includes Devin Williams. So, yeah, he was he was hard to ignore. I mean, he was impossible to ignore. He was definitely deserving. Like I said, uh, the only question that you would have had for his candidacy would just be that he was a, a reliever and he wasn't out there every day. But it was Josh Lindblom who, who actually made the point on Twitter. I saw where he wrote something along the lines of how many games did Devin Williams actually impact versus a position player where, you know, a position player may go over three over four, whatever one for three with a single in the eighth inning of a seven, two game. That's meaningless. Um, he didn't go into all those details, but you get the gist of what he said. Right. And, and I'm just trying to, add, I'm just trying to add some context for, for those listening. But Devin Williams, on the other hand, I don't recall the exact number of games, 20 something games that he pitched in, he made a difference in pretty much all of those, right? I mean, like, he was in there 6th, 7th, 8th inning. Uh, game was on the line. If he gave up a run or two, the game switches, the, the lead changes. Uh, he gave up, he allowed just one run the whole season. So, yeah, you can make the, the argument that way. Um, and that's a different way to look at it. It's a refreshing take, I thought. And it's something that at this point in the game, when you're when you're analyzing what's most important and what's most valuable, it's something you have to consider. And especially when a guy's pitching at that sort of dominant level that Devin Williams was in 2020. Yeah, I mean, you look at the impact that he had on the games when he was in. The Brewers were 18-4 and four when Devin Williams pitched in a game. Of those four losses, one was the one game that he uh, um, gave up a run, or no, the, I'm sorry, the second one that he gave up a run, uh, two of them were the two blown saves that Hader had. Um, so when he was in a game, it meant that the Brewers were going to win. And, you know, it, that should have a pretty heavy say into it is the success of the team when that guy enters a game. And if you look back, just to speak to one of your earlier points at 
Um, Craig Kimbrell, so when he won Rookie of the Year as a reliever in 2011, um, pitched in 79 games. Um, that was, so if you think of last year when, um, or 2019, when Alex Claudio led the league in appearances, that was 84 games. And so pretty close to, you know, a heavy workload. But what did Craig Kimbrell also have that year? 46 saves. So again, I, I think I agree. I think it's amazing that he didn't even have that to speak to, but he was just so dominant and the Brewers success a lot of times relied on his dominance. And so that's really hard to overlook. Yeah, it was impossible. And I, I don't think the uh, 50 or so strikeouts hurt his cause either, because <laughs> when you're striking out everybody, that's going to get a lot of notice. That's going to get a lot of cool Twitter videos and I don't think the publicity hurt him, and it was rightfully deserved. I mean, it was awesome to watch. It was it was a real tr- it was a real treat actually, and it's another good story. Like Corbin Burns, the guy sort of came out of nowhere. He was a guy that I don't want to say the Brewers entirely gave up on, but uh, you know, if if he was let go before the 2019 season, how many people would have really batted an eye? I mean, it it wasn't as if he was somebody who was knocking on the door of this opportunity and everybody saw this coming it's quite the opposite actually he was another guy that if he was left off the roster in 2020 and started the year in triple a would people have really noticed even <laughs> let I alone they about it. <laughs> i mean you guys would have sure yeah. but like you know the uh, some other people who even just watch the games not even just casually but watch most of the games i mean he was a borderline guy for the bullpen in the beginning of spring training, like the first day of spring training. And then he started pitching just like Corbin Burns, racked up performance after performance where he was eye-opening and impressive, built his case. And then summer camp, it became undeniable toward the end of it that this guy's going to be part of the bullpen in some way. And again, it, it, took a, it took him only a couple of days. I mean, he had that appearance against the Pirates where he entered the game and had a nice outing. And then from there, it was pretty much lights out. And so it's just another good story, just two really good stories for the Brewers um, in a season that, you know, could be quickly forgotten because they're tw- they were 29 and 31. But uh, there were some really cool highlights in 2020. Yeah. And, and Devin Williams, I mean, he is someone that, you know, w- when we saw that, you know, he won the uh, National League Rookie of the Year award, you know, put it out on Twitter, whatever else. I saw the weirdest thing. There was this this fan, this dude commenting on Twitter that, you know what, the Brewers should trade Devin Williams immediately. And I'm like, what? Like, this is the most ridiculous thing I've, I've ever heard. It's like, yeah, you know, he's he's just his ceiling or his value is never going to be higher than it is right now. So, so trade him. I'm like, is that a crazy idea? I think it's a crazy idea. Yeah, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I, 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 wouldn't, uh, I would not advise trading Devin Williams at this point. Not only is he purely dominant, but he's under team control for quite a while. I mean, we're talking about yeah. a guy who's, who's going to be a, a, a foundation piece for you in the back end of your bullpen uh, for a couple of years to come at least, right? In the vein of a Josh Hader. I mean, this is, I, I just look at De- what Devin Williams was doing and I just didn't see a fluke. It's one thing, like I said earlier about like if it was luck or if it was fortune and like you could, you could see statistics, mm-hmm. you could, you could look through it and you can, and you even know when you're watching the game sometimes where, you know, this guy's getting a little bit lucky or he's leaving guys on base as a, 
uh, a strand rate that's just not going to carry over into the next year, whatever the case is, right? Uh, Devin Williams, none of that stuff applied. I mean, he just struck everybody out. So it was like, yeah, that, that to me would be silly. Now, the Josh Hader situation is a different story. But, oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's not comparable, at least not right now. Um, and we'll see. You know, I mean, w- would it be surprising if, if Devin Williams gave up more than a run in 2021? No. <laughs> you know, like he's, he's going to have a higher ERA. He's going to he, he's not going to have a, a sub 050 ERA again, probably. Right. So, I mean, that's just things that, you you know, but that's also a product of the 30 innings or the, you know, 60 game season, whatever. Um, and those rates are going to climb a little bit, but I still think that, comparatively speaking, to the rest of the relievers in baseball, he's going to match up pretty favorably. Yeah, I don't know if you know Devin Williams is probably going to have a higher ERA, but Dave Williams might keep a pristine ERA. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Um, that was that was a, a cool thing to kind of dig up. Uh, you know, it, it is. Uh, it's always fun to sort of find those type of stories where you um, reveal some layers to a guy's past or whatever, because like I said earlier in our conversation and the guys in that story made a point, the minor leaguers that I talked to about uh, Devin's season in Biloxi, um, it kind of came out of nowhere. You know, the, the, the resurgence, I mean, this was a, a high draft pick of course uh, for the, you know, a few years ago, several years ago at this point, but he had the, Tommy John and just things were not working out as well. You can look at his statistics to kind of get a better idea of that. But yeah, it was just, it's just cool to see. Uh, it's cool to see somebody regain that confidence, believe in himself and, you know, put the work in to make those pitches the way that they are right now, because it's not just a change up, but it's also, you know, a really dependable fastball that could reach 98, 99, uh, pretty, pretty consistently. Uh, how big do you, you know, Chris Hook's influence was in having them stick with him. You know, he was down in double A at one point um, and was a minor league pitching coordinator. So, I mean, I have to imagine that he did a lot of work with Williams and then now being up the big leagues was able to kind of throw his weight around and say, hey, you know, we've got something here. That's a good question. Um, I had to ask something along those lines to, to Chris late in the season. And, you know, he had a he's had an interesting path with the path with the Brewers, right? Where he's been able to kind of at a, at a younger stage and then see them at the major league roster with Devin. It was a little bit different where he was sort of like Chris I'm talking about was in that sort of roving role for a little while with the Brewers. So he wasn't seeing him maybe every single day. Um, and then he moved to the, the pitching coach job once Devin was actually throwing more effectively in 2019 um, so he didn't really see that sort of resurgence. Um, from what I gathered, actually, like, I give a lot of the credit to Devin himself. You know, I think that he had some believers in the Brewers system um, because otherwise they would have parted ways or just would have would have let him go, perhaps. I don't know. But he just put so much work into himself that I think a lot of times we give credit to the staff and to coaches, and, and rightfully so a lot of times. But in this particular case, I feel like a lot of it is Devin Williams himself and what he was able to sort of build within himself. And I'm talking about putting the work in from a physical standpoint, getting in better shape, maturing as a person, understanding how good he was, understanding that he had another level to get to, and trying to do whatever it took to 
to get to that level, whether it was throwing weighted balls and going back to that, something that he hadn't done for a couple of years, or, you know, going into, um, what was it, the, um, not driveline, but uh, the, the track man stuff, um, mm-hmm. I'm forgetting the name of it, but, um, you know, he, he went into, you know, full-blown into that, and he found ways to get better, so I, I, I give most of the credit to Devin himself, although, I, obviously, I think Chris was a definitely a supporter of his, um, and he and he probably had a couple of others, but I think the most important person was Devin. Yeah, are, are you thinking of Rap Soto maybe? Rap Soto, there you go. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's really an an incredible story for I mean Devin Williams just kind of uh, turning into Dave and then you know, working his way up to the big leagues from that, and as a fellow Dave. I do appreciate the nickname that they gave him. Um, but you mentioned his uh, his bullpen made Josh Hader, uh, what they could end up doing back there. A lot of talk that Josh Hader's possibly on the trade market this winter. And, you know, from our standpoint, we've talked about it on previous episodes. We've talked about it on the site, uh, how Josh Hader's a, a likely trade candidate. He's getting more expensive in arbitration this year. He is... Uh, basically at the peak of his value. He's got three years of team control remaining. Uh, he's only going to get more expensive. The Brewers are in a tight payroll spot. They have plenty of guys, really, that, that can close out games in the ninth innings. With the emergence of Williams, Drew Rasmussen has come up and pitched well. Justin Topa pitched well. Uh, so they, they have plenty of options to fill that role. So they can trade Hayter um, while still being fine in the bullpen and maybe fill some spots uh, around the roster. How would you characterize the the chances of a Josh Hader trade uh, this offseason, and what do you think that they might be able to get in return for him? Yeah, that's the that's the biggest thing, right? I feel like that's the biggest thing with the Brewers every winter and every every trade deadline. It's been the same thing for the past couple of years, like you outlined, David. It's same situation. I feel like because although the cost in his arbitration is going to go up again, they still have a couple of years of him too so it's not as if he's like in that situation where it was you know it's not in a rollish chapman part two situation where you know he's going to be like a rental for for a team or he only has a few months left of his contract or anything like that um this is still a guy that's you know if you look at his numbers maybe not 2020 per se but um 2019 2018 he's incredibly valuable and for a team that wants to remain competitive that has Christian Yelich that has locked up Christian Yelich for the future and still has prime years of him you know 2021 is still a pretty important season I would argue uh, for the Brewers and you got to ask yourself if you trade Josh Hader you have to get pieces that are going to help you I feel like in 2021 um, because I you know just the, I look at the Brewers as not a team that could really it, it doesn't really make sense for them to trade him for prospects unless you're getting guys that are going to be at that prospect level for 2021 and and maybe they get to the roster late 2021 or make an impact as soon as 2022 but how many teams are going to part with those and the teams that are going to part with those are not teams that are you know the teams that have those type of players are not teams that have a need at closer or have a need at you know late inning help they're teams that are you know on the cusp of um, breaking out of a rebuild, perhaps, that have a lot of other holes in the major league roster that are not in the market for that sort of trade. So, one, it's hard to find, a, I think, a suitor uh, for, for, for Josh Hader for a couple of, for that reason. Um, you don't know what the value is going to be. Like, 
say for instance the uh, the Phillies, right? They're a team that wants that 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 should upgrade its bullpen that wants to be yeah. good again in 2021, right? They had some issues with uh you know getting into the playoffs because they couldn't they couldn't hold on to any leads for like, yeah. much, like uh, half the season. Um, so if you think about putting Josh Hader on that team, sure that makes a lot of sense. But who would the Brewers get in return from from a Phillies team that you know their their farm system isn't? I don't want to say it's barren by any means, but a group doesn't come to mind that's especially intriguing. The major league roster, who are you going to get um, that's going to help you? Hoskins, maybe, but I I mean, that's not a fair trade for Josh Hader. I mean, so it it becomes a little bit trickier, right? So you'd love to see like what's behind the door when David Stearns is talking to teams or or entertaining offers for Josh Hader. Because then that makes this conversation that we're having a lot easier where we could say, oh, that doesn't make sense or, oh, yeah, they should do that. Um, but without that opportunity to do that, it, it's hard because the market, particularly these days, it, it's hard to pin down. And at the same time, um, haters still valuable for this team, um, even with the emergence of Devin Williams and some other guys. Sure, the... Um, role of the reliever is a volatile one where it could change and josh Hader, the way we think of him today may not be the way that we think about him a year from now um for worse perhaps uh that said that could be the case for a couple of the guys in their bullpen next year and then what become what's now a strength for you is suddenly an area of weakness and you're right where perhaps the phillies are <laughs> for that matter so i don't know it i go back and forth with it as you could tell um, with with my way of thinking, and I'm not quite sure if I if I feel all that strongly one way or the other about about trading Hater. I guess where I land on it is I would have to see what they're getting in return because just on the surface of say yes they have to trade Hater, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, just because one I don't see the um, being all that worth it right now, and secondly I I still think really highly of him in the context of helping the Brewers in 2021. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a pretty good you know spot to take because, I mean, it's David Stearns is going to set a super high price for for Josh Hader. He set a high price on him during August, during the trade deadline period. It had a pri- high price on him last offseason. And it's really a matter of finding a team willing to pay that price. D- David Stearns is the kind of GM that, I mean, you, you know, he sets a price and, you know, he's not really going to waver too much from that. Uh, so for him, it's just a matter of finding someone that'll, that'll pay that. And I mean, you mentioned the Phillies. We had an article up the other day. I'm not sure if you saw it, where we, um, where we ranked, uh, the top five potential suitors that, that we saw for Josh Hader and the Phillies came in at number five and I had them, you know, that further down, you know, even though they have the big need, but because they don't really have the, the type of players to to fit i mean the the brewers have needs at the corner infield at third base they have alec bohm who just finished tied for second in rookie of the year voting he's not going to get traded you got Riss hoskins at at first base he's got the same amount of years of control left as hater does so if you do that the i think the brewers would need you know a little bit more also back from philadelphia to make it happen and like you said their farm system's not that great the yankees are, are another team um, but I don't see them as a perfect fit either. I mean, their probably best trade chip for the Brewers is Miguel Andahar, and he's only played in 33 games over the last two seasons. So he hasn't, you know, really kind of shown as much. He's had one full year as as a starter, and the past two years he hasn't really done that much. 
Uh, I think the Dodgers could be interesting, but, you know, because they got guys that I, I think would really, you know, fit what the Brewers need. But do the Dodgers really have that that kind of urgency to to trade those guys to get Hader? I mean, they just won the, the World Series, so they don't really need to go as all out for someone like Hader uh, as they might have if they had lost. So it, it's really going to come down to, I mean, I think there's a couple of teams, the White Sox, the, the Padres that might also be interested but when you're looking at those guys, it's mostly prospects that you'd be getting back because, you know, the corner infield spots or the catcher spots, there's just kind of no one there that's big league ready that would fit what the Brewers need in return for Josh Hader. Yeah, you mentioned the the Yankees. The one guy that, that comes to my mind a, couple, a lot of times when I think about it is, is Luke Boyd. Um, I'm not sure they would, they would part with him. Um, and I'm not even sure if uh, you know how how intriguing that sort of deal would be on on either side, um, for that matter, mm-hmm. because you know Luke Voigt uh, had a great year as far as power goes in 2020, but and he got himself in phenomenal shape and looks terrific, but doesn't really have a track record where you say to yourself, okay, this is going to be our guy that we could really feel great about. Um, or, or tremendously confident in. It's one of those deals where you have to have a little bit of faith in as well. Um, does have some control, so he could be appealing. I don't know. Um, but I think you're right, David, with the idea of just running through those teams and saying to yourself, there, there isn't a great match yet, and maybe we go into the season and we, we head into the summer months again where things become a little bit more clearer and teams become a little bit more desperate for help. Um, and if the Brewers are not having a great season, that could accelerate things in that direction. And then the opposite side of that, though, too, is that you know maybe they, with you know, a better season from Yelich Hira, um, that rotation that we talked about, would it be shocking to see the Brewers have a, a really good first few months of the season? Not really. Um, not exactly putting them into the NL pennant right now, but... I, I don't think that they're going to be, you know, a, a doormat either. So they're just one of those teams that's just right now they're in the middle of the pack. Uh, strategically speaking, it's not the worst place to be for them because they have holes, but they have they could build a roster together where if they get hot at the right time, they could build some sort of a lead and and, you know, strengthen their chances. So I think that right now it's a wait and see mode. I think that they're going to be waiting and seeing how the market plays out uh, because they have a chip like Hater that they, that they could trade if they, if they felt the need to, uh, but they don't have to do that right now. And they have that luxury of waiting. So since we have to ask everyone who we've uh, t- touched on this topic with, if you had to put a percent on it, your chance that you think Hater gets traded during the off season, what's, what's your gut tell you? Um, I would probably go like 65, 35. That equals 100, right? Um, <laughs> I believe so. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably go around there that he doesn't get traded. I feel more confident that he does not get traded. Okay. Um, I think that, well, I know that I did not hear anything about it during the trade deadline a couple of months ago. Um, there was a, there were like a couple of reports, I forget from who, but... Um, I was not, you know, I, I never got the indication that they were about to, that they were close to trading him, um, that there was any sort of offer that blew them away in any 
even remotely. Um, so right now, I just don't see that changing unless you know something like I said accelerates that for some reason. Yeah, I think I remember the report coming out in in August that the Brewers' asking price for Josh Hader was astronomical or something like it was. It was just an insane price tag. I think someone said it was higher than what the Yankees got for Roldis Chapman in 2016, which, I mean, is, is Glaber, Glaber Torres plus three prospects. And, I mean, you're asking for more than that. that that's a high price tag, um, e- even even with Josh Hader being as special as he is. So, you know, finding a team willing to do that, especially when you're in – a shortened season you're only getting you know one month of them for this year uh but you know still a couple years afterwards and no one having really seen any prospects at all this year there's there no minor league season uh so uh, it, it was just you know a really tough situation where they didn't really kind of seem close at all during the during the season but with the off season you know the the pressure you know the, the timeline isn't really uh crunched as much as it is um, during during the regular season, so they they have some time to to work things out and you know just just kind of see if it gets there. So I, I don't think the Brewers are like in a massive rush, but David Stearns has always been willing to listen. And if something comes along that that meets his price tag, you know I'm I'm sure he wouldn't really hesitate to pull the trigger if they met it. Yeah, I would agree with that 100. Um, percent you know, I, I put that percentage just because I'm, you know, I was thinking about it and just like like you outlined, it was going to take a haul a couple of months ago, and I'm not sure if that changed all that much from since then. You made a great point of not being able to see certain prospects or really any prospects with any sort of consistency uh, for the past couple of months. It changed a little bit with, I guess, the, the fall league going on, uh, but not really drastically, I would say, right? Um there's been some stoppages and stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult, like I said earlier, about the market. Just I, I feel like they're, they would be patient with it um, because that's another thing that you could say about David Stern, that he's always been pretty prudent with his decision-making mm-hmm. and um, not very impulsive here. <laughs> uh, no. you know, it's, it's very calculated, and it's um, – yes, he does listen, but I, I thought – yeah, it, it's been telling that they haven't moved him quite yet um, because, like we talked about earlier, it, it, he's just not going to be, chances are, he's not going to be a, a reliever of the year candidate every single year. You know, it, that's just not, maybe he will, um, but, you know, chances are that th- there's a shorter lifespan for, for these sort of uh, relievers. Lifespan's not the best way to put that, but you know what I'm saying is that there's <laughs> right. there's a um, there's only a certain amount of years where they have where they're at that elite level of production, and you know um, you gotta probably capitalize when you can, uh, but at the same time he holds that that value right now he's under team control, um, and you don't want to be in a situation where you're trading from one area to upgrade one, but at the same time you're you're decreasing that area that you're trading from because that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Right. Yeah. And I mean, just, just like we were talking about, you know, one of the factors that, you know, could lead to um, the Brewers like possibly looking at this is the payroll. I mean, he's getting, he's going to earn a raise this year after a season where they had no fans. Um, David Stern said it's going to be a tighter budget for next year. 
what do you think their their final payroll is going to end up looking like for next year? Do you, do you think it's going to be a whole bunch of massive cuts? Do you think it's going to stay, you know, maybe only slightly lower than the 97 million that they were projected for 2020? Uh, did, like, how, how do you see the the payroll situation working out? I would guess that's going to be lower. It's hard to say how much lower, uh, but I, I think that's a pretty. I think that's what most people would guess for the Brewers. I mean, uh, I, they're they're not at the top of the list for teams that are projected to be spending this this winter at a high rate, right? They're not really connected to too many free agents. Certainly not the big name ones, of course. We're not uh, getting Trevor Bauer. Oh man. Yeah, I mean, I, Springer and Bauer um, donning Brewer uniforms in 2021. Ah, uh, dang it. You know, uh, <laughs> but we'll see. I, I feel like they could be more active in tr- in the trade market um, in December or something like that, uh, where they can upgrade those corner infield positions because. You just don't see a path to the, to the postseason for them without doing that. Um, their offense is just not good enough, even with Lorenzo Cain coming back. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think that, you know, David Stern said uh, last month, a few weeks ago, that he made the point that they've upped the payroll the past couple of years. That's not happening, of course. It's a matter of how much lower it's going to be. I'm not sure exactly what that figure is, because uh, you know, but... I would I would imagine it being um, I don't want to say considerably lower, but l- lower than what the estimate is probably. Yeah, I mean I, I'd say that I don't think they can have the payroll go much lower than like eighty-five million dollars and still expect to remain competitive. I mean they, they've got over forty-one million dollars wrapped up in just Christian Yelts, Lorenzo Kane, and Avisel Garcia next year. That, that's just their outfield. They've got $41 million. So in, in terms of, you know, building out the, the rest of the roster, I don't think if, if they go much lower than, than $85 million, uh, they, they can keep a, a very competitive team. Uh, so it, it's just, it, it's going to be a matter of, you know, how many guys do they end up non-tendering and, and how much payroll space can they, uh, clear up and maybe bring some of those guys back for less or sign free agents for cheap uh, that that they can fill out this team. So, I mean, for, for me, I'd say it's got to be somewhere above $85 million if they're going to be competitive. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be too far off with the, what the estimate is. That's what I was trying to say. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to be some sort of like jarring number like that. Um, it will be less. And it will be something that I think people will probably end up griping about, of course. But oh yeah, and, and, people and, like to gripe on Twitter. I'm I'm not sure if you've if you've yeah, heard that. Uh, <laughs> but and, and that's fair. Um, but yeah, I, I think you made a good point about just uh, I think the decline of some options, which was uh, a league-wide thing. I think that was sort of telling, where you know a couple of those deals were pretty affordable and pretty fair. Uh, Jed Jerko comes to mind as, you know, I mean, that was pretty much what his value was, what they declined um, for what he was able to do and for his versatility and for what he showed. And it's not as if he's all that old either. I mean, he's still on the, the right side of 35. So, you know, he's, what, 32, 31 years old. So yeah, I thought that, was a, that would have been a fair deal for him. Um, so it's pretty clear that they're, that they're looking to uh, maximize 
their spending and be efficient with it and and wait and wait to see what the market tells them is the right amount of for for, for a certain player yeah I, I thought it was going to get picked up too until I saw Brad Hand get declined at 10 million Charlie Morton get his option declined Colton Wong got his option declined and, and all these pe- all these good players were getting their options declined at pretty reasonable prices and then I was like you know what I think Jed Jerko might get his option declined so it, it was just kind of a it, it's going to end up being a bad situation across baseball and you know in in terms of the money that's going to lead to a lot of non-tenders that we wouldn't normally uh, see across the league. And that leads us to a game that we like to call Drumroll Please. Tender or non-tender? You know, want to get right into it here for, for tender or non-tender. I mean, Brandon Woodruff, we know, is going to be tendered. Josh Hader is going to be tendered. I'm pretty sure Manny Pena is going to be tendered. So I don't think we'll need to go through... Um, those decisions, but the Brewers are going to have a couple of other uh, tough options uh, to make, uh, tough choices to make uh, for their arbitration eligible players. So we'll just uh, we'll go around the around the horn with this. Uh, we'll start we'll start with you, Will. Corey Knable projected to get five and one eighth million, I think, next year, final year of arbitration. Do you think Corey Knable gets tendered or non tendered? Yeah, that's a good one to start with. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm probably going to say non-tendered if I had to guess. Um, I I just think that it's it's hard to give that that money to a guy that that struggled in his um, year back from Tommy John, and again, it's not really his fault. It was uh, circumstances didn't dictate um, the cleanest rehab um, or ramp up period to get back to the majors. That said, um, aside from a couple of outings, he he wasn't all that consistent, and wouldn't surprise me if he did well in 2021. Um, I think I think he probably will do fairly okay in 2021, but um, just for right now, I, I I wouldn't be shocked if he was non-tendered. Yeah, I think the first time we did this exercise, I went with non-tender, and now hearing a only feeling a 35% chance that Hader gets traded actually makes me feel even strong, more strongly about that. I think one of the only chances that Knable would have had to stuck around is if Hader got traded, and that's only if you didn't receive similar contract value back. Um, I think it's an easy spot to shed payroll, and it's un- it is unfortunate that he struggled, although that velocity was ticking up at the end of the season. That it makes me hope that next year he'll look a little bit better. Um, but the bullpen did get by just fine without him pitching in high leverage situations. So I think especially if Hayden, that's a, that's probably a call they make is the non-tender. Yeah, I, I went, I think the first time we did this, I went with tender uh, the, the first time around, but that was also before I saw all these contract options get declined and really kind of where this off season was going. So I'm going to switch from from our ones a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to say non-tender, you know, especially just with, you know, how much money that that is. I mean, over $5 million for a guy that, you know, he's really not guaranteed to be, you know, even either one of your final two guys in the back end of that bullpen. You know, it's the final year of arbitration for him. I, I think that maybe there's a chance that the Brewers would try to bring him back at two or three million, you know, bring him back at a slightly lower price. Uh, but over five million, 
uh, just seems like a little bit too much in this market uh, for a guy that pitched the way that he did in 2020. And it, it's not totally his fault, but you know, just with with the way the situation works itself out, it, it looks like a non-tender for for Knable. Uh, another bullpen arm up for up for arbitration, Alex Claudio. Uh, he's projected slightly over uh, two million dollars in, in arbitration this year. Tender or non-tender, Alex Claudio. Um, I think on the surface, he, he he's probably somebody that that would get tender just because of what the job that he does, and he does it okay, but. I would, I'm just going to say non-tendered just because I assume that a lot of people will be non-tendered. And I think that David Stern said a couple of weeks ago about flexibility and there, there's some, there's some spit in that and, and that phrasing, but it's also pretty true that it's, you don't know where's the best situation sometimes to allocate your money in a market like this. And so when you're declining options that were fairly reasonably priced, I wouldn't assume somebody to get non-tendered that, you know, on the surface has a pretty affordable deal and for the most part does his job. But I just feel like like the the point that was made earlier about how well the bullpen performed. Um, yes, he's, he's a lefty arm and, and he's uh, he performs that role for you, but you could get somebody else, too, who does that. So it's not as if he's um, somebody that's, you know, a must have at that at that particular spot. Yeah, I'm going to go with non-tender as well. I think they try and do something similar to last season where they non-tendered him and then brought him back on a one-year contract again. I think he's also slightly minimally connected to what happens with Hader. Like if they did trade, somehow trade Hader before the non-tender deadline, it'd be really hard to justify getting rid of two of your three lefties combining with him and Hader and Suter and then only have Suter left, I think then that'd be more of a possibility of tendering him. But just knowing the situation we're in now, I would stick with non-tender. Yeah, I would agree. I'm sticking with a non-tender for Claudio. You know, like you said, Matt, you know, last year they non-tendered him, brought him back at a slightly lower rate. You know, I think they could look to the same thing. But I mean, when, when they got him, they were expecting a guy who had put up sub three ERAs in, in several seasons in a row with Texas. And then he had the one bad year with an ERA above four. Uh, that's when the Brewers got him. They traded the competitive bounce pick for him. And in his two years as a Brewer, he's had ERAs above four each time. So, you know, it, it may be the point where they just kind of cut bait, non-tender, and, ju- and just kind of let him go because, you know, they haven't they haven't been able to get him back to that sub-three ERA uh, kind of guy that he was before. Um now let's go back to the offensive side. Orlando Arcia uh, projected to get you know over three million in arbitration. Had a battle for shortstop with Luis Rios this year. Tender or non-tender, Orlando Arcia. Yeah, for me it's kind of the same same line of thought I had with uh, Claudio, where it's like on the surface, like sure, you know, you bring him back, he did his job. But for me, um, I would probably go non-tender if I had to guess, Ooh. even though he had a, he had a uh, a solid season. Um, I'm hesitant to say that it was, uh, you know, all that great because it was, it was average. I mean, like none of his statistics popped off the page. Uh, they caught a lot of attention because he tended to, to produce in critical moments and that's great. And he also was better than he was last year and he improved in areas where he needed to improve. 
but again, I go back to something that David Stern said when he was asked about the shortstop position, and he brought up defense. And I thought that may have been telling because statistically, Arcia didn't have that great of a, a season defensively. If you if you look at the advanced fielding metrics on him, um, he's known to make some flashy plays. He could be fun to watch, um, but. If, if you if you look at the numbers, they're not really in his favor. And aside from that, you have Luis Urias right there. And so I, I think a lot of it depends on what their plan is at third base um, and and first base, like just what their plan is in the in, in, the, in the infield for that matter. And if they could if they see themselves with um, somebody else at third base, based on how high they are on Luis Urias, they don't make that trade if they're not high on him. Um, they have the if they get somebody at third base, uh, they could put him at shortstop. And you know, Orlando Arcia doesn't have the positional versatility that other guys have either. I mean, he's not somebody that's played another position other than than the shortstop. Could he? Probably, but he hasn't at the major league level. Um, so I don't know. I I just don't see somebody in uh, that that again that has to be kept. Um, that you have to keep. Could they bring him back? Sure. Um, could could they also, you know, have him uh, be in sort of a role at shortstop with with Curious? Yeah, sure. All these are, all these are possibilities, and I think that he had a really solid season last year. Um, but again, for that flexibility case and just the amount of guys that I'm expecting to see get non-tendered, I I, I can't say that with with a whole lot of confidence that he's automatic to be tendered the contract this year. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with tender, which was my original one on this. Although I agree, I would not be surprised if he was non-tendered. I think he had a was on track to be non-tendered had he produced another season this year, like he had in 2019, 2018. Um, he at least kind of salvaged his season a little bit. But yeah, like you said, like it, I mean, his WAR was pretty much a flat zero. I I believe on both baseball reference and fan graphs, if I remember correctly, I know for sure on baseball reference, um, I feel like there's a chance they could try to move him. Although again, that said, you know, it was just an average season for a shortstop. Um, I would prefer that they try to move him and try and get something back, but um, time would be running out for that, I guess. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I, Again, I agree that like so many decisions, so many financial decisions are getting made that are tough already in this offseason. And so ones that I felt pretty confident about a tender earlier, feeling less so these days. Um, but I'm going to stick with my tender on this one. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like Will just kind of convinced me a little bit that they might go with <laughs> non-tender. So I, I'm going to... I'm actually going to say non-tender as well. Just, you know, with like looking at the shortstop position, like the Brewers made the trade for Luis Urias because, I mean, they believe in him. They really like him. They think he's going to hit. And, you know, he's got a higher hit ceiling than Orlando Arcia does, frankly. Um, they traded Trent Grisham, another guy that they really like, uh, to San Diego to get him. And, I mean, Trent Grisham had a fantastic year for the Padres. And, you know, they've got Arcia. They gave him the chance to to really kind of battle for it. And he was basically given a head start because Urias broke his hand and then he caught COVID. And, you know, it took him a while to finally get there. 
Um, but like over like the first like month or so that that he was up, Urias was hitting like 280, 290. You know, it fell into a slump towards the end of the year. But I mean, next year, if you have both Urias and Arcia, you know, unless you're putting Urias at third base uh, primarily, which I mean, he can handle it defensively, but that doesn't provide the power that the Brewers need at that traditionally powerful position. You know, it, it doesn't provide that offensive pop. So I think they want to get Urias a lot more playing time. And, you know, they're not going to put him at second yet because you got Keston Hira still there. And, you know, putting him at third, it doesn't give you that offensive thump that you need. It gives you an on-base guy, but it doesn't give him the offensive thump. So I could totally see him uh, cutting ties with Arcia and giving Urias the reins at short and just finding a different direction to go in at third and get some power. All right, uh, next one, another position where the Brewers uh, will, might have to make some tough decisions. Omar Narvaez uh, projected for you know slightly under $3 million next year, had a really tough offensive season. Tender or non-tender Omar Narvaez? I would go with tender. Um, it's, a, it's a tricky one for me. I, you know, I, I think I wrote like 3,000 words on it like last month just because <laughs> it was like – it's an interesting case. I mean, it really is. And I had asked Thurns about it, and he gave a pretty good answer, I thought, with saying that this is this is a really tough decision for us. I mean, this is something that we're going to have to make a call on because I go back and forth with what I think about Omar Narvaez offensively. Do I think that he is um, what he showed in 2020? No, absolutely not. I think that he's better. But the question I have is how much – how how good is he offensively? Because before the before 2020, right? I I, I liked his game, but I, I wasn't like in love with it because it's he's not somebody that you could look at the statistics and like paint a really good picture for or really be proven right for with the statistics. He doesn't necessarily hit the ball hard. Uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of line drives in his game. That exit velocity isn't there. Never has been. Uh, but year after year, he puts up you know, a high on base percentage and a high batting average. And it, w- it was almost like baffling. Like, how does this guy do that? And then 2020 happens where he doesn't. And then it's like, okay, like all these rates sort of make sense in that context. But he had all these at bats under his play on um, under his belt. So it's like, it's, it's a weird one for me because it's like statistically, some of it just doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, so I look at that and I, and I tend to say to myself, like, he has the skill of putting the bat on the ball and making contact and knowing what a strike in the ball is and getting on base and hitting the ball to the opposite field and hitting the ball where defenders aren't. And there's skill to that. There, there's a skill that maybe isn't exactly measured all that well on, you know, baseball savant or, wh- or wherever else. You know, maybe there's some 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 skill there that's just not captured that well. Um, not only that, but defensively, he improved. And I, I think that they invested a lot of time in that sort of defensive improvement. And he took a, he took a significant step forward there. He wasn't brilliant behind the plate, I would say, but he also wasn't catastrophic and he wasn't something that really held them back in the way that a lot of people feared that he would. So I look at all that and I say, I think that they are, they may be inclined to give him the pass for his offensive struggles in 2020 and Look, if he if he struggles again and they have to cut ties, it's not exactly the highest, you know, amount of money to sort of eat 
Um, and he and he plays a position where you know who else would they go to? Um, I mean, like you could make the case of Nottingham and Manny Pena, sure, but now I, I still tend to like the the upside of, of Omar Narvaez because what he's proven at his best is that he could be one of the better hitting catchers in the league, and if his defense continues to improve, maybe he's even better. So we'll see. Um, if I had to guess, I, I go tender based on that. Um, hopefully that was a coherent enough argument. Uh, <laughs> but he's another case where, like, similar to, to Arcia for just different reasons. You can go both ways on that. Yeah, I still go with tender on this one. And kind of because of what you were starting to allude to at the end there, I don't know that there's another direction that they can go. Like, I, I don't want them to switch to Nottingham uh, instead of narvaez feliciano is not ready i think he gets added to the 40 man for the rule five draft um separate conversation um and then for the free agents that are out there i know one that gets floated around that a lot of people like is james mccann but he's projected to make 10 million in average uh annual value on whatever contract he gets roughly right around there and with the little spending money the brewers have i, I just don't see them putting it there so I think they give him another chance and try and see if he can bring back that 2019-2018 production um, because they don't really have much of another choice, I mean, in my opinion. Yeah, I'd lean towards tender as well for him. I mean, it it's not a ridiculous pr- price. It's $3 million or slightly below that uh, for a starting catcher who has – several years worth of a track record of, of production in the big leagues. I mean, he's got four years where he hit like two, 270 or higher, basically. Uh, so, I mean, he's shown himself to be a pretty good hitter at the big league level. And, you know, I think 2020 was just kind of an odd year for, for everyone and it really hit Narvaez hard. And, you know, I say keep him for 2021 if he continues to struggle and, and doesn't do well in a full season next year. And then you can cut ties, and you got Mario Feliciano ready for 2022. So they, they got the catcher of the future lined up. Feliciano's not ready to start 2021, but l- l- like you said, Matt, he's he's going to get added to the roster most likely, but he's not ready to start right now. But he's going to be in AAA next year most likely, and if you get maybe at least halfway through the year or you get through the whole year um, before you cut ties with Narvaez, if he continues to struggle, then, then you'll have... Feliciano essentially ready going forward. Um, all right, now we'll just kind of you know quick go through some of the other uh, final options kind of towards the back end of the roster. Ben Gamble, he had his contract option declined uh, for about slightly over two and a half million. He's projected 1.9 million in arbitration, so it makes sense for the contract option decline. Uh, but do you think tender or non-tender Ben Gamble? I would probably go um, non-tender just because they have um, Billy McKinney, who they picked up, and mm-hmm. I, I thought that was not 100% the writing on the wall because Gamble does have, an, uh, I believe he has an option left too, um, so I could theoretically see them picking up, the, picking, uh, you know, tendering him, tendering him the contract, excuse me, um, and and keeping him around uh, because he he showed a little bit of, of pop and he's still somebody that's useful as far as speed goes and defense in the outfield, um, left-handed bat. So there, there's things to like about him, but just uh, same theme as before. It's like you want to be smart with uh, what who you're putting the money toward. I think 
we're in a winter where every dollar is going to count for this team, you know, unfortunately. And so when you have somebody like who you just picked up in, in McKinney who could also play first base, according to Stearns, um, that makes him a little bit more attractive and it makes uh, Gamble perhaps expendable. Yeah, I'm glad I don't have to be the only bad guy here because I've kind of uh, <laughs> talked myself into non-tender there recently. And I know uh, plenty of fans uh, would be disappointed if that happens. But uh, I, Tyrone Taylor got a little run there at the end of the season. And I don't know that, I mean, his offensive numbers really didn't look that much different than Gamble's. So I don't think you lose a whole lot there defensively. Um, I didn't, you know, we only got to see a little bit out of Taylor. And I don't know, you know, what his potential was down in the uh, minor leagues. He did uh, actually show up with uh, two defensive runs saved. So, you know, he's, he does did it, do something there. Um, but, yeah, I agree. It's kind of – it's an easy cut of some money that you could maybe spend somewhere else um, in an area that needs to be improved. Yeah, I agree. The only thing that uh, you really kind of lose going from Ben Gamble to – Tyrone Taylor is $1.4 million in salary. That, that, that's essentially it. Um, so, I mean, the Brewers can can use that money, save it elsewhere, um, and, and spend it on whatever they need to or to ensure that they can pay the guys that they already have. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to lean non-tender for Gamble as well. I mean, the Brewers are so deep with, with outfield options um, in, in their minor league system. A uh, place where they're not that deep is first base. They claim Dan Vogelbach off waivers. He's got several years of team control, did really well down the stretch. Uh, but, I mean, historically, he's never been a 300-type hitter. Uh, but in his small sample size, he did really well. Tender or non-tender, Dan Vogelbach. Yeah, I guess this question goes to whether or not they'll have the DH in the National League. My guess is that they probably will. Um, but we don't know that to be certain yet. And so that's what makes this really difficult. Along those lines, I say they tender him the contract. I think that he's um, somebody that, in a short short span, um, proved that he could hit. Um, Does have that season with the Mariners where he he posted some really solid slugging numbers. So on a team that just lacks so much offense, I just, for his price, I, I feel like it's probably something that I'd like to see them pick up. Um, so I, I would su- I would suggest that they do it, uh, particularly, of course, if there's a DH in the NL. I'm going to keep being a Debbie Downer here. Um, <laughs> I'm actually going to go with non-tender, which is different than my initial stance here. I know he's not uh, very expensive, and I know he has a lot of years of control. Um, and I agree that a lot of it does have to do with the DH. And so let's say that they don't have the DH for next season um i think there's some options that have been popping up on the market that would make sense to um put some money towards that would be more you know possibly um reliable i guess that you would feel better that they would have a more reliable season than a vogelbach such as a mitch moreland who um only made three million last year um he started off hot with the Red Sox last year before cooling down with the Padres, but he generally has decent numbers from year to year. Carlos Santana came out um, and he had a bad last season, but was very good in 2019 and is only projected 6 million. I know the Brewers are tight, but if they do free enough up where they want to go at a certain position, I don't think that's entirely out of the realm of possibility. I just think that they could 
go with a safer bet at that position if first base is the position they're considering Vogelbach for. So I, I know everyone wants to see a very Wisconsin-like guy in the lineup every day, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go the other way with this one. Yeah, Dan Vogelbach's kind of the the reincarnation of Chris Farley, essentially, with with just kind of how he um, it carries himself out there. But I'm I'm gonna lean towards tender with Dan Vogelbach uh, simply because I mean it's not a huge uh, price tag, and even if they want to get uh, one of those other options, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Will, but if the Brewers waive uh, an arbitration eligible player before the season starts, their salary's not guaranteed at all the Brewers wouldn't end up having to pay that full salary um if they tender him but they they let him go before the season right right yeah so you know you know they could you know if they don't get someone like Mitch Moreland or Carlos Santana signed before the non-tender deadline uh they could simply tender Vogelbach and then if they end up getting one of those guys later in the offseason they could just let him go so that's where I, I lean right now with Vogelbach simply because they don't really have any other options right now for first base. So, you know, better to at least have something on the roster. Uh, and then last, but well, essentially least in terms of the amount of money that he's projected to earn, Jace Peterson uh, projected 850,000 utility guy. He drew a bunch of walks. He couldn't really hit that much, but he drew a bunch of walks and got on base uh, tender or non tender Jace Peterson. I'd probably go with um, non-tender just because of the, the flexibility that they that they want to have. Um, but, I, I mean, if they tendered him a contract like you outlined, David, it, it wouldn't be at a high price tag where it would really change the, their direction toward anything else anyway. And I actually like Jace Peterson a lot as a player. I think that he does a lot of good things for the team. He, he plays some really good defense, plays some, a bunch of different positions for them. Uh, he gets on base. You mentioned him not um, hitting a whole lot, but uh, I felt like he he found something a little bit um, late in his career in the minor leagues last year in 2019 and 2018. That there's still maybe something to that where he could post some some solid numbers in a in a limited role in a limit, limited capacity where you know they're asking him to pinch hit and to be a platoon guy late in games, that sort of deal. They're going to need that, whether it's going to be Jace Peterson or somebody else. Um, we, we see that all the time with the Brewers. So maybe they tender him just because of the price tag. They like him. Um, he was on the roster for you know a, a significant portion of the season for a reason. Um, but again, I would probably go non-tender just because they could bring him back anyway if, if they go that route. Yeah, I'm going to go non-tender I think that I would rather personally see some of that uh, playing time go to a younger guy with a little more potential like Mark Mathias who also plays you know plenty of positions you know he had a 393 on base percentage last year and um, if that was as a result of working on some things um, that that's cool but I can't imagine that's sustainable especially when his career on base percentage is 317 um, I Again, I would just it's not much of a savings when you're talking him versus uh, Matthias or a Billy McKinney or someone like that. But um, I think there's some younger guys I'd rather see with that. And it opens up another 40-man spot that you can kind of use towards some of the uh, other things that you're planning to do during the offseason. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd say non-tender for Jace Peterson. 
Uh, I, I think he had 15 walks last year and like nine hits. Like you don't very often see a guy with more walks than hits over, over a whole season, even though it's a shortened season, but still, um, uh, yeah, I, I just think they can find similar production um, elsewhere with, with someone else that, cause I don't think Peterson has any options remaining either. So it, I mean, if he's out of options, so you could have a guy like Mark Mathias who can easily go up and down uh, for a bit that um, they could that they could use for even though it's minimal savings. It's in this kind of offseason, it seems like every dollar is going to count. Um, so yeah, that, that really the the Brewers arbitration eligibles. One quick final thing I wanted to ask you all: um, Brewers Instructional League is going on right now. Um, have you been hearing anything about, you know, what's going on down there at, at Instructional uh, First round pick Garrett Mitchell has been down there, but he was dealing with a, a minor injury, um, but things are kind of feeling fine. Do, do you have any updates down there from Instructs? Uh, not so much. I mean, they had to, uh, they, they had the, the COVID situation, so they had to stop for a little while. Uh, that was reported a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, Garrett Mitchell had missed time before that anyway with the quad issue like you outlined. Um, not a whole lot there yet. I'll probably dig into that. It was supposed to wrap up this week. Uh, I believe it started October 12th, November 12th. So I was going so I'm set to uh, probably keep tabs on that starting at the end of this week and kind of get some reports on how things sort of went, what they were able to get from it. Um, pitchers looked Solid. I think that that was kind of like um, an extension of summer camp where some of the same names uh, who were in Appleton and went to Arizona, they performed at the same same sort of um, rates that they were performing in Appleton for the most part. Uh, the Brewers got the opportunity to look at the pitchers that they got from the Phillies trade. And I think it was important just to actually see those guys, <laughs> you know, for a change um, and, and for them to kind of like just get a look at them. Uh, again, it's just like they were only there for about a week or two, um, four weeks in total. I mean, we're talking October, like I said, October 12th to November 12th, pretty much. So it's hard to make any sort of sweeping generalizations on their performance, especially when it's been uh, disrupted a bit. So it's hard to say, but I think that that's it's not a bad thing that they were actually able to kind of see those three guys and, and see what they're able to get from them um, going forward as they begin their minor league careers with the Brewers. Absolutely. And, you know, looking forward to, to your write up on, on what happened there at instructional league and, and getting some updates on these guys. So, you know, really, really great stuff. Uh, do, do you have any, you know, big things in the works there at the athletic that we can expect coming out in the next couple of days besides the, the instructs? Yeah, we'll um, we'll be rolling out some some cool projects like that I've been working on here and there. Uh, some stuff on Ryan Braun, uh, Bob Uger, um, just some historical stuff. So uh, been plugging away at that for the most part and trying to enjoy some some downtime before what I hope will be a 162 game season in 2021. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, even the 2020 season was pretty hectic with it being still every day. It wasn't as if like it was 60 with you know three to five times a week it was still every day and um that that uh came at me pretty fast so, so still trying to enjoy some off-season time and trying to remain flexible and hopefully uh the brewers make some moves um that would be exciting and that would be um definitely get me uh writing some more um 
will uh, make me a lot more eager to be riding um, in the middle of the winter uh, to see them make some moves and to, to write about what those mean. So hopefully they happen. Um, I'm not sure if it will be happening too quickly, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah, going to have to be patient with that, and um, especially knowing David Stearns. And, you know, we got to get you a chance to hopefully experience 40,000 people there at, at Miller Park next year because you, you haven't had a full crowd there yet. So, you know, that, that's something that, that you got to experience too because, you know, we, we got to get to that point where we get full stadiums again, hopefully soon. Yeah, no doubt about it. It was definitely a weird season for it to be the, the first season covering games at Miller Park uh, with, it being, with it being empty and with it – being the last season that we call it Miller Park, at least officially. Uh, don't remind us of that. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Will Salmon, thank you so much for joining us, man, on the on the Cold Brew Podcast, man. It, it, it was a blast. We ran a little bit long, you know, but you know, it was it was a lot of fun. It, it's always good to talk baseball. Oh yeah, anytime, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot, Will. So. Uh, we'll be sure to check out what he's got coming up there on The Athletic. If you haven't already, I recommend a subscription to The Athletic, by the way. Uh, great stuff, absolutely, from Will, from Ken Rosenthal, from everybody there at The Athletic. Always great stuff to see. And also be sure to uh, hit hit follow and subscribe to our podcast here, the Cold Brew Podcast. Uh, follow us on Twitter at coldbrew underscore pod and also at reviewingthebrew. Uh, so that will do it for us this week. Thank you so much to Will Salmon for Matt Carroll. I'm Dave Gasper. We'll see you next week on the Cold Brew Podcast. <laughs>